The three R's of reading, writing, and arithmetic that defined the education in the early school days are a good starter kit, but they're not quite enough to equip our children for growing up in the 21st century. I'm Garland McWaters, and this is the Spirit of Leading Podcast. There's a new set of basics finding their way into the second half of our children's education. I call them the three C's, and they include critical thinking, consciousness, and character. And on this episode of the Spirit of Leading podcast, we're going to be talking with Cheryl Menifee. She's a house principal at Muskogee High School in Muskogee, Oklahoma, and she's going to bring us up to date on this movement of character education and why it matters. Why Cheryl? because Cheryl is the past national director of the Schools of Character program for Characters.org in Washington, D.C., where she worked for five years with public and private schools nationally and internationally, helping them to develop their cultures of character. Cheryl also serves on the board of directors for the Oklahoma Schools of Character, and she came back home to Muskogee, Oklahoma, to bring all of that knowledge and passion for character education right here to her hometown and her home school. Cheryl? Thank you for making time to join the Spirit of Leading podcast. Thank you for having me. But I'd like to uh, kind of go back and start with your time with Character.org in Washington, Washington D.C. When people have sort of a national perspective, it always gets my attention because I know you've seen a whole lot more than just, you know, any one place. And I'm wondering how all that came about. How did you end up being a part of that organization at that time in your life and career? Well, it actually happened here at this high school because um, I was a part of a team that created a culture of character at Muskogee High School. We became the first school in Oklahoma to become a national school of character. Um, my uh, character Yoda or spiritual father, if you will, is Madison Tomlinson and we worked together then. Uh, and so even after we begun that work, we started being the coordinators of schools of character volunteer. Um, and so after, uh, I think several years, uh, the director position came open and, and Madison said, Cheryl, you should really apply for this because we had doubled the numbers of schools of character since then and, and done a great deal of work to build capacity. And once that had happened, I just took a risk and applied and they appreciated my zeal for public education. They appreciated my passion for character development, and um, they were thankful for my passion for people. And so with the, that combination, they hired me, and I went on this incredible journey uh, in 21 different states and I believe three countries that I got to evaluate schools and work with volunteers all over the nation who evaluated schools and were committed, and much like you, to um, just use their spare time uh, the greatest resource we have to forward this work. And so that's how I came to be in Washington, D.C. So I think it's a little bit more than being in the right place at the right time. You have to have the right sort of passion and perspective and experience for all that to really work. And so as you sort of expanded your, your, your horizons and vision of working with these different schools, what did you see? What was, I mean, when you got there, I know you, you go with expectations, mm -hmm. but was there, was there anything that surprised you whenever you got to, on that job and started looking around, something that really said, oh, I didn't expect that? 
It was so very surprising the way that educators made something out of nothing. Many times there wasn't a budget for the work that was being done, but they found it. Mm -hmm. So I was surprised just by the resourcefulness of those people that I share a profession with. I was amazed by the level of commitment that people had for this work. Um, I was amazed about I knew the impact because I saw it here because after we implemented the 11 principles of character, achievement went up, attendance went up, and discipline went down. So I knew it worked, but I got to see it repeated and replicated in every setting imaginable, whether it be public or private, whether it be rural or urban, whether it be small or large, that if you really were intentional with teaching young people about these things, these traits, um, and using it as what, whenever I was in education to become an educator, they used used to call it a hidden curriculum. Mm -hmm. Well, the premise of creating schools of character is to take it out of a hidden curriculum and make it visible. So we take those words and we make them real to our young people. We define what respect looks like. We define what kindness is. We define what honesty is. We define what all of those things are. And then we teach them. And then we evaluate it. And we look at data. And we do it intentionally and comprehensively. And so within that, the thing that surprised me most often was the major impact that it could have. Hmm. This thing that um, we have really pushed to the side in education really can be the make or break factor in what creates a great school and what sets us apart. And you said that it also brings down a lot of the disciplinary problems as well. Mm-hmm. And so uh, and, and you've, you lived through that. You saw it not only from a conceptual perspective, but also on a day-to-day basis. What are some examples of the ways that you think knowing more about those ideas do transfer into seeable, doable actions? How do they make those come alive? How did you make those come alive for these young people? Well, it's interesting. I'm going to hearken back to character.org's 11 principles. And principle number two is to teach character in thinking, feeling, and doing. So the first aspect of that is to think about it. So we have conversations about it. We define it. And then we feel it. What does it feel like to be kind? What does it feel like to do the right thing? What does it feel like to serve others? And then we do it. And then we do it again. And we do it again. And it becomes a part of us. And so um, as far as real terms, uh, how have I seen it played out in the hallways is if you have a common language, Uh, I believe there was a quote that I was listening to that our world is only as large as our language. If you have a common language to communicate the things that you want to see, the desirable outcomes follow. So if we talk about respect, we practice respect, then I can have a conversation with any student at any time about what it means to be respectful, and they understand it. It's not a foreign language to them anymore. And unfortunately, the fabric of our society has really deteriorated. There are some tears in what respect means, um, just from what we see in media, what do we see in adults in our day-to-day life, um, even in politics, whether it be um, in social media, which is profound, or the music we listen to. So all of those things play a factor on culture, Mm -hmm. and we have to work way more hard to get that to contradict what's happening in mainstream media. 
And so um, it plays out in, um, in our correction. How I correct is different uh, than don't do that. No, go there. That's wrong. All of those things we have to correct, but it's different when we, we really recognize behavior as a teachable thing. Mm-hmm. It's not a punitive thing, though there will be some consequences. The reality is we can't hold students accountable for something they haven't been taught. And when I teach it, then I can hold you accountable for it because it isn't as if I don't know you know it because we talk about it constantly. So um, going full circle to how did I see this play out, um, it's in correction. It's in prevention. It is in um, the foresight to, to recognize the challenges before they come and address them and try to mediate those threats. the idea of the hidden curriculum that it's sort of been there but not really come to the forefront Uh, what progress are we making in being able to bring this type of curriculum right out into the everyday uh, everyday curriculum what's going on in our schools now is there is there is there any uh, any laws being passed that require it or is it just morely more of a volunteer thing or something that local schools or principals take on as uh, as part of their own what they want their own legacy I guess of what they want to leave behind I would say we're as far as legally we're digressing um, there's some moves that um, we educators have to advocate for unfortunately it isn't on the forefront so we really have to be more intentional um, about pushing that forward um, and how we advocate for it is it isn't something else we do it is what we do and I think Marvin Berkowitz said it best when he said, this isn't something else on the plate, it is the plate. Um, and I completely agree with that. Um, and so I don't, I think that we've taken a couple steps back, but I see that we're gonna start progressing forward. Um, in racing, sometimes you have to slow down to speed up. And I think that's what we see right now as far as uh, where character development is is in this moment, but I think that it's going to be pushed forward as we continue to see the need for um, reaching every student in all of these days where there's so much trauma and after the the things that we've experienced in the latest couple of years, the importance to recognize that um, we can't work in os- isolation. We have to work together because we are, um, takes a village. So um, as we see more and more days where our schools are are virtual in some respects. You know, family involvement is just so critical. Um, And so uh, principle number 10 in in the 11 principles of effective character education uh, really is focused on the community and stakeholders and parents being involved. So as we see those things really be strengthened, we're gonna see a, a move um, in legislation where we make it a priority again. I think it's head in that direction. We're just, I don't, we don't see it yet. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out because I know, I think that uh, people really do want to see a kinder, what we call a kinder, gentler uh, uh, relationship. Uh, we, we, there's a lot of talk now about civil conversation. In fact, uh, some, some of the work I'm trying to do sort of is around that where we get people of very different uh, 
different uh, philosophies or concepts or perspectives, able to have conversations, difficult, hard conversations, important conversations, but do so from a place of, of, of ethical behavior and character and, and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And there are certain principles that have to be in play before that can actually happen. There are character principles, I, th- I would think. But I think that there's an appetite for that. Do you see that appetite among young people? Do they seem to be looking around and saying, oh, well, listen, we did, could do better. Uh, adults could act more adult, <laughs> you know, whatever. Is, there, is uh, that happening? Absolutely. And I, thought, I think we, we saw it play it out at the Ethics Bowl the other day because those were some really hard questions that our students had to have conversations about. And I don't know, I wasn't in your session, but in the session that I got to judge, it was so amazing to see them be able to have civil discourse and and to do that in such a very gentle way and um, so I think that the appetite is there and I have actually heard many students talk about I needed more adults to act like the adults Um, and I do believe that um, that our students also have a hunger to see things be better and uh, in the leadership classes that we have here they have those conversations all of the time, conversations around being better stewards, about being better uh, friends, about being better in uh, a variety of ways. But yes, I see that that is definitely happening. Well, that's encouraging to see because I think that a lot of times young people uh, are a lot more astute than we give them, we give them credit for. Mm-hmm. We think we're the adults and so we've got it all figured out, but the Young people look at us and they're saying, they're going, really? <laughs> and, uh, you know, where's that come from? And they'd hold us accountable sometimes. I know my daughter was always good about that with me, and uh, she still does that. She looks at me and says, Dad, well, you know better. <laughs> So that, I mean, that really brings up kind of a, a, an area that I wanted to talk about was this, this crossover between what we call ethics and character. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they sound similar, but they're a little bit different. How do you see those working together from the way you approach those two topics? Ethics and character, how do they relate to each other? I see ethics as the action word. It's the, it's the compass uh, if, of sorts, and then character is the, it's maybe the, the adjectives it's the traits it's it's the the things about us like it's almost as indicative to us as our eye color our hair color it's the thing that's within us that is malleable um that really takes us above where our talent takes us and ethics are the the that's the decision in between so character is the foundation of who you are talent is where you're going and then ethics those are the decisions that lead you to the destination that you're getting mm-hmm. to. Yeah, I can see how those two, how that relates. So ethics is sort of that choice process. It's mm-hmm. the choice moment mm-hmm. that uh, you say, okay, am I, am I or am I not? Will I or will I not? Which path of the fork in the road am I taking here? And what and do why? I value more? And what do I value? Okay, say more about that. What uh, value and what sense of value? Um, so whenever I, I value um, relationship. I value time. And so when you have a decision to make um, between that, for instance, I was late here getting to you all and I apologize. But in that, I had to make an ethical decision. This is a relationship and an important conversation I have to convenu- con- I have to continue. So I have to make a decision. Do I put this off 
because I have this appointment and it, and ethically I needed to be here on time to be with you. But in that moment, I had to make a decision between staying true to this relationship that's important while your relationship is important too. And trying to, to make the decisions in the in-between, which Mm -hmm. there isn't a right or wrong. There's maybe a better and best and to really make those decisions that really elevate the most important thing, the thing that's the most important, um, and those decisions that happen just in an instant, and you don't even realize they're happening until after you're reflecting later. And then you really, and reflection is so key, and that's another part of the 11 principles. If we just continue doing life and we never reflect about what we're doing, we never slow down. I think you said it best a while ago when you were, you were talking about the moment right here. Um, and sometimes we have to get to let it later to reflect on the here when we were making that decision. Right. So it's, um, it's about what's most important um, and what is the end that you have in mind. And um, it's complex. Right. It's not an easy question. It's, no. and, it, and, it's, and it's not sometimes an easy decision. And so your example about you know, coming down for our appointment to record this podcast, well, I appreciate your, your uh, the, it went through your mind that maybe you would keep me waiting. I'm used to waiting. <laughs> and so I want to re- alleviate that off of your, no guilt there that you should feel <laughs> about you. that, because I know that your work is, sim- is simply the most important thing you can do. And, uh, and I'm just so thankful that you were able to carve out a little bit of time to talk to me today. Well, we do find ourselves in these moments, these crossroads, and we say, okay, what am I going to do? Uh, what's the right thing to do? And uh, we were talking about, I think I mentioned earlier about the law, that uh, the law can only define things so far. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I've gotten the habit of kind of saying tongue-in-cheek, but I really am serious about this, that I believe that uh, the law is the, lowest, is the lowest bar we can set before we really get ourselves into trouble. <laughs> it's sort of our agreement as a, as a community that, okay, you can go this far, but if you go any farther than that, you're going to get, there's going to be consequences. And so the, the debate becomes, where do we set the bar? Do we try and raise the bar as high as possible, or do we lower the bar as low as possible? And there seems to be that ongoing conflict, politically, I guess, about where the bar ought to be. And some want to sit it lower and say, we're going to make it you know, not, le- not illegal anymore. And people say, no, we need to raise it and make it illegal. <laughs> to hold ourselves to a higher standard, not a lower standard. So that legal thing is always in flux. But when you get into ethical choices, it seems to me like even though it might seem murky, they, they seem to, to me be a little bit more substantive. Do you get a, a similar sense? That- I would say that's absolutely right if we're equipped with an ethical lens. And that's why teaching these things in school is so important. Because if the bar is low, legally speaking, and this is never a conversation in school and we haven't developed ethical citizens, and if that is what is going to really um, dictate the day, I think that makes this work even more critical. Mm-hmm. And I do agree that you're right. That is that ethical lens that, that is superior to law. People will say, and, and I've, I've heard this all, my whole life, people say, well, I didn't, I didn't do anything illegal. But someone comes back and says, yeah, but you know that's not right. I mean, there's a sense of, of, 
of this uh, ethics or morality or whatever you want to call it, that, that there's something just not you know, up to snuff about that partic a particular behavior because it, it does certain things. There are certain consequences to it. And you're th thinking of, of the actions and the consequences that go to them. Are there a set of, of I guess, of criteria or what make, of what makes something really awful, or wrong, or a, a, an ethically a bad choice? Does that conversation ever come up? Why is this wrong? Why would this be wrong? For me personally, it is um, the Bible is my is my focus, and so for me spiritually, that is that is my compass. Um, I think for society, it's really it's really about harm. Um, it's really about um, the best decision for the masses while also being true to the substance, substance laws that we've created to guide and direct us. And so I think that, again, is one of those very thought-provoking questions um, that we could ponder on, um, and also which makes it um, even more challenging to agree upon because, as individuals, we all have different focus. Um, so... For someone, I'm going back to my example, though I appreciate you not giving any guilt. Someone who says without a doubt, timeliness is key. It's the most important thing. Punctuality is just the end all be all. Um, that to them, me being late would be very harmful for them. Um, but then on the other side of that, the parent who was needing me in that moment, you know, um, and the particular instance was, was pretty critical. And so for them that their child is the most important thing over punctuality. Mm -hmm. Um, and so as we're having those conversations, you know, then we can say, okay, is, is this figurative abstract thing more important than this person? And I would say that the person would win, um, in that regard because of value for me is of course people. And so in relation to that, I, I think it goes back to um, people and taking care of one another and communities and, and our nation and, and um, our children especially. Um, and so those things are guiding factors for me. And so for a community, if I, if I were saying, I think that it could still be said that people are most important, that we should make sure we're protecting people uh, at all costs. Well, wouldn't you say that uh, within some of our own founding documents for our country, we have sort of ethical principles that are that underlie them? You know, I mean, we quote it all the time in the Declaration of Independence mm -hmm. that you know we're all created equal and that uh, we all have that should have the ability to pursue our life, liberty, and happiness without without interference, mm -hmm. and we're all we all are equally have a right to that. That's an ethical principle, and. Uh, when we call, when we say when we sort of make statements like well we're one nation under God or we're liberty and justice for all and things like that those are what we would say ethical values mm -hmm. general values and that if we are people of good character we would act consistently with that and so I guess there are some things in there but like you say it's it can get a little murky and it can be subject to interpretation I guess. But uh, I would I would certainly agree that the do no harm to me is the is maybe the first thing. You know, I I feel like uh, for me personally I I feel like people should have the freedom to do whatever they want to do as long as they don't hurt anybody else in the doing of it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, 
the do no harm is a big deal to me. And like you, I think some of my, our own principles come from what we've learned through our religious associations or you know, the churches we've gone to or just conversations we've heard, you know, <laughs> about Bible stories or other kinds of uh, value-oriented uh, uh, stories that are meaningful to us in some way. So we come by these in a lot of different ways. And, uh, and, and they end up with us standing at a crossroads of a decision saying, gee, should I do this or not do this? Should I cheat on my income tax or not cheat on my income tax? Should I, you know, should I take a little extra from a vendor, you know, to do them a favor or not do that? It's not illegal, but yeah. So let me take a little extra surreal. long yeah. lunch or <laughs> leave a little bit early. And, and those things continue to, to bleed over and do no harm. Would You would think that's doing no harm, but in all honesty, it's not doing goodness and yes. so there's so much to that mm-hmm. yeah the uh so i mean that's a, that's such an important thing for young people to think about for all of us to think about i believe do you see do you see in your from your role as a you know an educator and working in with the with these young people that uh that we can we can we can have an impact in in a more indirect way uh, rather than having to say well it's part it's the curriculum, but it is a way of being. How, how can you make that can you make that argument that it's it's not hidden but it's not necessarily upfront either. Uh, the way that we teach or approach character education in our schools is a little bit of a little bit of uh, more practice than it is preaching. Absolutely. Um, the reality is culture will be created. The question is, will you do it intentionally or unintentionally? Mm-hmm. And I would say that if we do it unintentionally, we are unintentionally setting ourselves up for disaster. And so we have to do it intentionally. That means it really can't, we can't afford for it to be hidden. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have to have it explicit. It needs to be comprehensive. All people need to have a part because you're exactly right. It's not about what I what I say, it's about what you see me doing, because you learn more about what I do than what I say. And we have seen that play out as parents, certainly. Um, and we see that in schools every day. They're, we are being watched, and they are remembering. Mm-hmm. And we are the best example, and we should be the best example. The question is, if only our actions were what we were saying, because we couldn't speak, what would they say? And that is the most incredibly important part of being a character educator. Right. Yeah. Well, do you get any pushback from parents that uh, you're, you're teaching them something? They say, we ought to be teaching this at home, and you don't have any business teaching character education and values and stuff like that in the schools. Just stick with the basics. Do you ever get any of that? That has been an argument that I've heard in various places, but I've never had a conversation with a parent when a parent has said, please don't teach my child to be good. <laughs> I have never had a, a conversation with a parent where they've said, this isn't your role. Yeah. Um, and I think it all stems back, if we're talking about this unknown entity teaching whatever XYZ values they're pushing forward, I think that in that ambiguous example, there could be pushback. But in an example where there are people who have relationships with one another, that they trust, that they believe in, that they've seen their actions that line up with their words, 
that there will be no pushback mm -hmm. because they believe in what they see and they will back you up because it isn't just something, a poster you put on the wall and then you lecture about. This right. is something you live out um, and you care about one another. And in that community, trust is built. And then there is, in the old days, you know, um, the neighborhood helped raise children. And it was because of the trust that was built. Um, and so because of that, there was correction. And it was, it was acceptable correction because my mom knew that if I was out and someone saw me doing something like crossing the street without looking, that they were going to catch me and they were going to fix it. Um, and so she felt safety in that. And we really are working our very best to create the safest um, learning environment for our students. And in that is the um, formula for, for our parents to trust that we're, we're doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And it's not perfect, but it's progressing. Right. And I, I, think, um, I think that there will be people who would say they don't want schools to do that. But I think there would also be people that would be thankful. Yeah. I remember when I was uh, a, a youngster in school, we'd get our report cards, you know, but there were two parts of that report card. There was the grades for the uh, academic achievement, you know, whatever they were. And then on the other side of the report card, there was the, the thing called deportment, <laughs> where they would say how, they, how I was acting in school, you know, in terms of working with other uh, children and, and the way I acted and showed respect and things like that. And uh, is there anything like that on report cards anymore, you know, in our schools where parents get feedback on how well their kids are doing with with uh, it socially and with other kids or just in the way they act and carry on? Citizenship. Um, it is, there are places for teachers to provide feedback and comments about behavior. Um, there really isn't a grade attached to that, at least not in this school, um, but there are opportunities for students to be recognized for their character. Uh, and there is, um, there in some, and I'm going to take off my, my sight hat for a moment and go back to the national perspective. Um, there has been um, some movement to measure character growth. There has been, um, in fact, uh, Dr. Liston in Missouri has um, created a way to measure from the beginning to the end uh, the growth in particular traits um, that they have identified as key traits and things of that nature. So there is work nationally to make this uh, be a part of the conversation again in what we measure and what we track and what we provide feedback with. Well, well, that's certainly worth following up on down the road sometime because I'm very interested in seeing what specific traits they've identified. And, uh, you know, I mean, this is not, uh, this is not new. You know, I'm uh, people who listen to my podcast know that I was originally you know, a minister and have a degree in biblical studies and stuff like that. And I'm pretty heavy on 1 Corinthians 13, uh, not just because of what it says, but because of, of the way it says it. It says this is love and this is what it is and this is what it is not. And so it's not these and their behaviors. They're describing the behaviors of love. Mm -hmm. And so love doesn't do this and it doesn't do this and it doesn't do that. And if you're a person, even in the New Testament, when it talks about uh, what I would call the sins, uh, mm -hmm. it really gives examples of behaviors. And it's, and it's saying you don't act this way. These are the actions that you don't do if you're being you know, a good person. And these are the actions that you do see coming out if you're really being sort of not quite such a good person. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and so this is not really new. 
and, uh, and, and holding people accountable for uh, the actions that they, that, they, uh, that they exhibit and labeling them as appropriate or inappropriate. You know, the fruit of the spirit has a certain set of action qualities to it and the, the opposite are the same. And so I don't see uh, that, that uh, any effort at trying to identify character behaviors and say, these are good things to do. <laughs> We should do more of these mm-hmm. and then say, oh, these are the bad things to do. And we shouldn't do those things is certainly uh, not, to me, it would seem to be make all kinds of sense that we would be, be wanting to do those kinds of things in our schools. So that's just me talking. OK, Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> but I, one, one final thing here, and, and I appreciate your time, is that all of this has obviously had some kind of an impact on you. What have, how has it changed you? All these years of really dealing with this and coming, becoming aware of it, then getting involved with it and seeing it happen, how has it made you the person that you are and how has it changed you? I'm much more reflective than I once could have been defined. I am more intentional. I am more careful. I am um, going to school to get a doctoral in doctorate in educational leadership. So as I am learning all of these different things and uh, about qualitative research and a gamut of things that is just somewhat overwhelming at times, it's helped to remind me of the resilience required to do great things um, and the importance of um, setting an example for others to follow from a small town girl who was able to go to OU and get her doctorate, you know, as an example for other young ladies who maybe don't come from a lot of means, but I've been able to do that. So in my reflection, it also provides for me uh, some accountability, some personal accountability to give back, um, to share my story, to inspire, to correct, um, and all of those things that to, to be an example of what is possible. Uh, and also to be reflective in my mistakes and, and go back and say, you know, in this moment I missed it and I want to be forthcoming in that so that they can think through that. When we're learning about math, um, we, we think out loud while we do, we're doing those problems, but how often do we think through our ethical decisions or our wrong decisions or our right decisions and teach that process to our children first and foremost, and then our students in other areas. And you know, now that I'm an administrator um, with our teachers to think through decisions together, and uh, we don't have enough time for that often, but it, it has made it more important to me to be more transparent um, and um, to share the the load. And I have three philo- I have three components of my leadership philosophy. The first one is think if. And um, that is that anything is possible. Um, kind of going along with Mark Batterson's counterfactual thinking and of, um, of his book, If. Um, live love, because love is not easy. It is hard sometimes uh, to love people in a way that um, they're supposed to be loved. I'm required to love them uh, when they don't always like me and I don't always like the behaviors I see either. You know, that's a challenge in and of itself, but it's a challenge that I have to hold myself accountable and what love looks like. You mm-hmm. just were talking about that and it's very explicit of what it looks like and what it doesn't. And then the last one is my hardest one, the one that I'm really focusing on this year, and that is uh, to work hard. And I have no problem working hard. Like, I will 
burn the candle at both ends. The thing that I find myself most challenged is giving the hard work back to others to do. And so I've challenged myself this this year um, to do the hard work of letting others do the work because some of the most um, important reflective work can't be done by me anyway. It has to be their work, um, our students, our teachers, our community. Uh, and so this work, um, this character movement, this ethical um, ethical whirlwind, I guess you would say, that I'm on has, has really helped me to evolve to never stop evolving and never stop growing, never stop reflecting, and never be satisfied with my current state. Great advice that we can all learn from, and uh, I certainly commend you on your willingness to share those insights, you know, of your own of your own experience, and uh, to wish you well in the continuation of this. I mean, this I think is a fascinating topic, and it's, we just simply can't do it justice, you know, in 30 or 40 minutes. Uh, and it's ongoing, and it's uh, and it has been ongoing for ever since who knows when. <laughs> Honestly, it's just that maybe now we are becoming more intentional. Maybe we are now taking time to really think about this critically and ask ourselves, gee, now, what, what does this mean? And should we, how should this be playing out in our, the way we treat each other on the street or, you know, in business or in our politics or in our civic discourse, civic discourse or whatever it might be, just, or, or just our neighbors? Uh, these things really do, really do matter. And if we are more intentional, maybe we'll come to a little bit different kinds of behaviors about those. So, but anyway, I, Cheryl, thanks so much for your time and for making a, a, a room for me at the end of a busy day. And I'll tell our listeners that we are recording this in, at Muskogee High School in the conference room close to where your office is. And uh, thank you for making this available to us. And uh, I wish you well. And um, I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, what happens down the road, not only here in Muskogee, but as this character movement uh, takes, more, uh, takes more shape you know, around the country, especially here in the state of Oklahoma. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's Cheryl Menifee, who is a, a house principal. I'm sorry we didn't have time to go into what that means, but just think Harry Potter <laughs> and houses there. Uh, that's the way they uh, divide up their uh, students, uh, really alphabetically, but they take on certain names uh, that uh, relate to character principles in their house. And she, she has a, a group of students that she's responsible for, and they call that their, their house. And uh, so she is a house principal at Muskogee High School and a member also of the board of directors of the Oklahoma Schools of Character. Cheryl, thank you. thanks again for uh, your comments and for sharing your insights with us today. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of the Spirit of Leading podcast, and I want to thank you for listening in. I also encourage you to recognize and appreciate anyone who demonstrates the spirit of leading at work and in the community. When you join the Empowered, you'll get notification of my latest podcast and the latest posts in my weekly Empowering Thoughts series. So please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. And until next time, I urge you to live empowered each and every day and unleash your creative energy by enlivening the heart, enlightening the mind, encouraging the spirit, and enlarging your expectations of living. I'm Garland McWaters.